Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to the New Jersey School Board Association's podcast program, Conversations on New Jersey Education, a program designed to let those in the education community and and beyond uh, get to listen to the educational leaders and discuss education issues in New Jersey. Uh, I'm very pleased today to have with us uh, the Acting Commissioner of Education, uh, Kimberly Harrington. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you, Ray. I'm happy to be here. Oh, you know, uh, you just got this position. I guess it's been a little over a month now. And um, I just want to – I know you spoke at workshop, and you had a packed audience, but there's probably some people who weren't able to see that. So uh, I'd like to use this opportunity for you to introduce yourself a little bit to the the education community because some of them know you because you have been – you're not a stranger. You've been to – school board association events and other education groups I know before. But could you just tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Thanks, Ray. So I'm Kimberly Harrington, and very happy to be serving in this role as the acting commissioner and continuing my lifelong work advocating for children in New Jersey. I'm a lifetime New Jersey resident myself and have two um, children who also influence my work in advocating for children. I started in the classroom and was a classroom teacher for 16 years. I taught every grade, K to eight, and then moved on um, from serving in the classroom to serving a larger population of students and their families as I became the director of curriculum and instruction and served in that role uh, for another four years prior to coming to the department. And then came to the department back in 2012 and served as the director of academic standards where I was assisting and working with teachers um, to, as they look to problem solve around problems of practice and how they could better serve their students and, and really trying to be in a support role. And then moved um, two years ago into the role of the chief academic officer, really looking at all things related to teaching and learning and how we work together as educators and school board members and parents um, and the state officials so that we really can wrap our arms around all children. And then, as you said, um, two months ago became the acting commissioner of education, where, again, I'm just so incredibly humbled and honored uh, to serve advocating for the children in our state. Uh, I was taken back. And for those who are listening, uh, we'll be monitoring the chat room. If you have a question, I'll try to get it. I do have a list of issues that the commissioner and I will be discussing. Uh, and if you're listening on the phone, uh, Mike uh, is monitoring the, the switchboard, and he'll get to you and push on the questions to me. Uh, but when you spoke, you, one of the first places you went was the uh, New Jersey School Board Association uh, workshop. Uh, I was struck by some of the things that you said, but I've, one of the main focus, if not the main focus, is that the, we should really focus our conversations uh, in education and the focus from being on the adults in education uh, to what's best for the kids. Uh, I know I said that very fast, but is that pretty much your philosophy? 
It is, Ray. And before I, I speak to that briefly, I just wanted to say that um, I'm so thankful for the School Boards Association because although you pri your primary membership obviously are the New Jersey School Board members, we're a partnership um, and work together in the community of educators and school board members to serve in districts. And so when I was in the district, um, I actually cut my teeth as a leader, so to speak, by attending the school board's workshops. And it's just such an incredible place, and like today, an opportunity to learn and grow alongside each other as we think about how we serve children. And so that gets me to your question of, of my prioritizing and my, my statement at workshop this year about really that critical need for a long time um, in education reform. We've been talking a lot about adults, and it seems to become the primary focus of the conversation, what adults need, how difficult some of these initiatives um, are for adults, the time that it takes for adults. And, and I think somewhere lost in translation has been that focus on students and how critically important being mindful and focused on students first and foremost. And I really believe that as adults, if we're having conversations about education, that if we began every sentence um, with the students or the children, and then we proceeded with the, the, whatever the topic was that we wanted to discuss, we could really make tremendous headway because we may not agree on the topics depending on the stakeholder group that we represent. And I, I please forgive me because I left out an incredibly critical stakeholder group um, whom you also serve excuse me, and many of your board members are parents. Um, but when we think about where we stand on difficult topics, we may not always view it from the same, same vantage point, but I truly believe that we all do come at it with hearts that really want to do what's best for children. And so when they're at the forefront of the conversation, it allows us to come to difficult conversations and to problem solve around obstacles in our, our districts and our schools and our classrooms and our homes and communities in a very different way than when we're focused on the adults and and we forget to include the children in word and in focus of those conversations. Uh, you mentioned this earlier uh, uh, that you're a parent, and I know you've also said, and this gets to your point, I'm just, uh, is that sometimes you, not sometimes, a lot of times what drives your thought process is as a parent and seeing how your kids learn, because you have one in college and one in the K-12. Uh, so uh, is that part of your philosophy is because it's driven as a parent. You know, it, it absolutely is, Ray, and just like anything else in life, as we grow and mature and have life experiences, it shapes who we are and, and what we bring to our work, and, you know, certainly I've always advocated for children, um, even before I had children of my own, and uh, served in a a difficult district that had a lot of needs and really making sure I wanted every student who came into my classroom to have just tremendous opportunities for success in whatever they dreamed about. Um, and then certainly becoming a parent, you know, moving through the teacher role and then becoming a parent, you know, you, you want certainly very certain specific things for your own child. But for me as an educator, that is applicable across all children. And, you know, as I served as an, a teacher and an administrator, wanting those things for every student in my school and or the districts I've served in, but then coming to work at the department where there's just that 
awesome responsibility of thinking about students in an entire state. Um, you know, you really want to become the nurturer and the person who's reaching out and being a protector. That's what being an advocate is all about and making sure that you're being mindful of the needs of all students and how we have access and opportunities for every student here in our state to not only have the dreams and passions that they have um, for the next stage in their life, whether they're a kindergartner with early stage dreams of where they'd like to go, or they're a senior who's thinking about what's the next step for them in their journey, um, making sure that we're really being mindful that those children have everything they could possibly have to have a successful next step, whatever stage they are in, in the educational process. Uh, and one of your other points uh, as you addressed the, the members was uh, put, thinking about students that uh, we, you know, we all tend to go back to our own experience as a student, but it's it's really different. Our students learn, have different tools at their access, and sometimes that past experience we have as students ourselves might not be the proper way to view education today, that our kids are learning different. And how do you see that developing, and where's the department's role in uh, helping districts and students, uh, I think uh, you call the future ready. Uh, so how do you see that developing? Well, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, we've had, I think one of the things we fall into, again, as adults, and especially as we get older, is, you know, certainly, well, that's how I learned it this way, and therefore, you know, and I turned out great, um, and not being mindful of the ever-changing world that our children exist in. And, you know, just to give a quick example to tie into that future-ready component, you know, when I was a child, um, I had to go to the library and put my name on a waiting list for a volume of the encyclopedia that I wanted and go to the card catalog and find all the books on the topic I wanted to research. But, you know, my own sons, when they're doing a project or whatever, often have multiple devices, a cell phone, a tablet, a Kindle, a laptop, all open, a, a computer, looking for various resources while typing up and taking notes. And, you know, information is right at their fingertips. And so the skill sets needed from when I was a child and I could go one book at a time and, you know, it took a long time to gather information to my own children who have it at the, at the snap of a finger. How do we support that not only um, in our homes but in our schools and, and what is our role? And so at the department, you know, I see us really serving to support districts to make sure that they're able to bring that technology to their students. And um, so we've had several different key initiatives. We had a broadband initiative, which saved over $85 million to our schools here in New Jersey, where they were able to get broadband services to bring the internet and um, connectivity and speed to their classrooms. We have a Future Ready initiative and, you know, our partnership with you all, uh, which has just been spectacular on thinking about how, what it is that we're doing to um, prepare our students and our schools so that they are future ready in terms of meeting the needs for those skill sets that we know business and industry are looking for, that we know our children need to not only be successful in their whatever career pathway they choose, but in their role as a citizen as they move forward in terms of being able to be good communicators, a skill that they'll use um, you know, not only in their 
in their jobs, but, you know, if they are going to advocate or speak on behalf of others, really wanting to make sure that they know how to write and to read and communicate. And, you know, sometimes I think we think about helping children to find their voice in terms of how they speak and so that they can be heard and their opinions can be um, taken seriously and with real value and to really make a difference. Um, but I really believe that there are other voices that we need to foster in our children, the voice of creativity and most critically the voice of the heart, which allows children to, um, you know, to make a difference in their, in their town, in their state, in their country, and in their world as they get older. And, you know, when we know that technology is connecting people in a way like never before, where people from town to town or state to state or even country to country can work together to problem solve using technology to connect them. And so helping to bring that into the, into the schools so that they can um, better serve their children and their communities, but also being able to celebrate the, the districts and schools here in our state who are, who are really doing a tremendous job and being able to say thank you so much for all that you're doing, but also to help them connect to other districts who want to do the same kinds of things and may wonder, like, how were you able to do that, being able to serve as sort of a network, and that's that future-ready focus and our innovation communities um, where we bring together schools who are working on similar projects or with similar focuses so that they can um, help one another and learn from each other in the process instead of having to reinvent the wheel. Uh, let's just go through a few of the issues, too, that uh, really help move student achievement forward in New Jersey. And uh, a lot of these will be more adult questions, I guess, uh, dealing with adults, but actually not the first one. Uh, standards. Uh, and this is what you spent a good deal of time on a, a, a year ago. Uh, and how, wh what do you see as the importance of state standards and standards in education for uh, our students? It's a great question, Ray, and I think, you know, when we think about protection and advocacy, again, of students, um, standards are what allow us to really think about making sure that w that access in an equitable um, education is there for all students. So students, um, you know, in one school or one town aren't getting a different education uh, around what are those essential skills that are required to be successful in each stage of education and then moving on beyond that. What are that scaffolding of skill sets that are needed? And how do we think mindfully about what are those foundational essentials? And I say foundational um, very explicitly because Standards really are the floor. They're not by any means a ceiling. And so, you know, we have the skill sets that allow students to learn from year to year and build upon that. And if they need to move, you know, within the state from school to school, those expectations of those core, those those basic foundational skills for learning in all subject areas are consistent. And then we know that our exceptional teachers here in the state and our school leaders um, are really mindful of the specific communities and populations that they serve to be able to then 
build from that foundation, a firm, solid foundation, and to take learning into all kinds of amazing places by adding on levels of difficulty, um, by adding on additional skill sets based on the needs of each individual child um, for a teacher in the classroom that they have, but wanting to make sure that there is a consistency across our state um, so that children all are receiving that, that foundational set of skills that they need to be successful, whether it's moving from grade to grade or, as I said, to the next phase of their life. Uh, just a short follow-up question to that. Uh, arriving at what the standards should be sometimes involves a lot of uh, different uh, groups, teachers, administrators, parents, school board members. Um, what's your approach to that? Is it going to be your philosophy, I guess, is similar to when you love the standard review is to bring all the educators t together on that? Yeah, it absolutely is, right? I think, you know, do, going through the standards review a year ago really helped me. I, I always consider myself a lifelong learner, and that was certainly one of those situations that allowed me to learn um, something new and, and I think really made an enormous difference to our work. In the past, when we've reviewed standards here at the department, we always bring in content experts, whether they're internal from some of them are from the department and some of them are usually researchers known around our state in the high higher ed community, our colleges and universities, um, some of our outstanding leaders, our curriculum directors, folks who really specialize in a content area. Um, but in this particular review process, the lesson learned for me was just as you pointed out, all the various people who touch children's lives need to have a, a voice at the table because if we're going to make sure we're really thinking about all learners, we need to make sure that their voices are represented. So, you know, not even just the groups that you called out, which are so critical, but also being mindful of our learners with special needs who need assistance in the classroom, our, our learners who are on a more accelerated um, program, our learners who are either newly arriving to the country or who have, you know, are learning the language still. Um, and our students who are in career and vocational schools. But so, you know, having, having those folks be members of the conversation so that we're making sure all voices of students are heard and then taking it to another level. And really, we brought in a tremendous number of teachers to work on this review because who better to inform the work in the revision process than the educators who have been using these standards in their classrooms and who can speak to, you know, what's, what's working, what's missing, um, how could we improve, where could we take away? Um, how could we shift things where they're more developmentally appropriate? And so that really made an enormous difference and, you know, is a, is a practice that I really seek to continue to implement as we continue to review standards and implement standards here in our state. Um, in the last few years, I think uh, probably the, one of the most contentious or the mo emotional aspects has been uh, standardized tests in the assessment process, uh, particularly PARC. But uh, I don't think anyone's saying that we shouldn't have no assessment, but where do you see the state's role and the importance of assessment in education? 
so uh, we really have, you know, this has been an, uh, this is one of those ongoing conversations having been in education for so long. I was actually in the classroom when we transitioned to NJ Ask and went through a very similar process, but without social media at the time, which, you know, people can point their fingers, but I think it's excellent that we're able to communicate with one another and, and have different conversations because we hear different sides of the story. And, you know, right now I would really urge us to move the conversation away from a focus on, on park specifically to really talking about park as one tool in a healthy assessment system. And that's a conversation that we, you know, haven't had because we get so, again, in that adult world, we get so focused on whatever is the hot topic, which you're right, Ray, certainly park and standardized testing has been. But, you know, it's simply, I use an analogy that really works for me, um, is that it's, park is simply one photograph like the photograph that sits on a fireplace and you look at it, you know, once in a while when you're walking by, but it doesn't tell the whole story of a child. And what really helps us better is when we have a scrapbook of lots of different pictures of a child that are open on a, pay, on a table, a coffee table, and, you know, people look at it all the time and reminisce and have conversations about that child and their growth. And so in schools, you know, when we talk about what makes for a healthy assessment system, we know that our educators are constantly paying attention to where each child is and where are their strengths and weaknesses and how can they better help them grow. And, and they do that in formal and informal ways. And so really being uh, from the department, shifting our focus to support the development of healthy assessment systems. Um, again, that, that over-testing conversation that comes up when we look at a healthy assessment system, we find that balance that helps us to create that, that really rich scrapbook that tells a story rather than one photograph that, you know, sometimes is, is just that, just that. It's a moment in time. It, it doesn't tell or create the full story. Uh, thank you. That, that was uh, interesting in that uh, I think we do, in the, at least particularly in the, in the adult world, I, I think kids are used to it, uh, to test. They, they expect tests looking at that scrapbook, or I'm going to call it a photo album because there's numerous photos in there. Uh, one of the reasons that adults get upset, though, uh, and when we assess students is they feel adults are going to be held accountable uh, for that in teacher evaluations. We've moved to change the teacher evaluations, I guess, the last three or four, four years now, I guess. Um, how is that proceeding? Uh, I know we tweak it every year. Well, I think, you know, it's such a difficult conversation to have. You know, I remember when I was in the classroom, certainly, you know, when my I, my administrators would come in to do my evaluations, you know, I was really eager to receive their feedback and to think about how I could better serve my students, and sometimes they saw things that I didn't see. And, and I think, you know, in our teacher evaluation system and sometimes – you know, you might, we might have, again, this might be one of those areas where we have differing opinions. Again, I feel like this is, it's important to recognize that this is also a scrapbook approach and that we often focus on sort of the percentage of standardized assessment that can play a role sometimes in a, in a teacher's evaluation process. But remembering that, you know, although that percentage has changed, that it is, um, 
still there's a larger percentage that exists from other collections and pieces that teachers show to sort of build a portfolio of how they um, are assisting the growth of their of their children. And I also think, you know, an area that we have really been looking at at the department is how do we better serve our pre our pre service teachers who are coming into the field of education so that we set them up for success, which in turn sets up our children for success. And so really looking at, um, you know, working with our higher ed community and our pre-service programs uh, um, to think of how we in increase the time that a teacher has to spend in the classroom interacting with mentor teachers who can, you know, really help them to see how practice is actualized with children. And then also, you know, working to support our schools and districts so that, you know, they're receptive of having those, those young teachers, those novice teachers coming into their classrooms. It's really difficult sometimes to share your classroom with, with someone else when these are the children that you are, you know, charged to to grow and so how do we do a better job of working on both sides of that to ensure that we really are helping our teachers to be as prepared as possible to work with our students uh, just to follow up on the on the student teachers that uh, or the people going into the teaching field uh, and I have had previous programs on this with people from the Department of Ed and administrators uh, is the idea behind that is that most studies that I've seen is that that first year of teaching, the first few years are the hardest for any for the teacher, and that this early preparation or, or more or rigorous preparation might help in that aspect for that first couple of years. I know even the teacher of the year said she struggled her first year. Yeah, uh, that, now she's I remember my. I remember my first year of teaching, and I was really fortunate. I got it. I came out of college at a time where there was actually um, an overabundance of teachers, so it was very difficult to get a job because you know there were large number, 500 applicants per position, and I was really fortunate to get a job right away. But you know, being 22 in a classroom of students uh, that there was no adult in there with me, telling me you know how or what to teach or how to manage a difficult circumstance, or you know, some of my children really had very difficult situations at home and really needed me to be a nurturer as well. And, and juggling all of that your first year, you know, certainly we have tremendous mentorship programs that exist in our schools, you know, but I, again, really looking at how can we help make sure that those teachers, um, and you referenced, you know, our both Chelsea Collins and our Jean, our new teacher of the year, have said that, you know, really having those the 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 um, preparation and the supports in the community there to help you in that first year. We really want to see our new teachers be successful so that they continue to um, stay in the profession and to guide the children in their classrooms. All right, I have a couple uh, more questions. One of them, and um, at least for a lot of local school districts and for school board members in particular, but school administrators as well, was the superintendent salary caps. I know the district, uh, the department, re and they were about to sunset the department, uh, proposed some uh, uh, um, changes to those. Could you just very briefly just tell us uh, what those changes were and a little bit why you looked to modify the, the cap? 
Sure. Um, you know, we really we, we understand that, um, you know, our superintendents are spending an enormous amount of time and, and have certainly shifted their role from the past where a superintendent was seen much more as a manager to where they're truly an instructional leader and, you know, leading the principals and their, their central office staff and, you know, all of the, the staff within their district to, um, you know, maintain the greatest success and support for their children and the community, the, the parental community, school, larger school community. And so how do we, we know that um, one of the problems that we've had certainly has been a, a retention of our great leaders in our schools. And we, we needed to be mindful of what are we doing to, um, to incentivize our superintendents to stay in their districts and to continue on with the great work that they're doing. We know that, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. And so when there's constant turnover, it's very difficult to make sustainable lasting change rather than when we are able to keep a superintendent in a district um, for multiple years and extend even beyond that. We know that that real change can take root and we can see change in practice, which in turn helps us see change and student success. And so um, really looking at a large number of adjustments that were made to um, offer some additional supports to superintendents who are continuing to serve in their communities, most of whom have a, a, just a servant heart and love the work and love the children in the communities. But also thinking about, um, we used to have six categories for enrollment and there was a maximum salary for each of those categories. And you know, how do we, how do we better um, serve and incentivize and draw new talent into districts as well? So reducing those six categories to three, as well as in increasing those maximum salaries um, to allow for, for growth. And, and, you know, we see this as, as a step in the right direction. We certainly know that, um, you know, most people would love to see this go away entirely, but um, we've, it, what the, the new regulations have been incredibly well received um, as, a, as certainly a step in the right direction and an acknowledgement of the tremendous talent we have here in New Jersey and the importance of keeping those people in our schools. And I, I should point out to anyone listening that there, there are public, there are times for the public to make comment on these uh, proposal, the proposed changes. And I will say that most school board members in the school districts, uh, to your point, probably don't think they're really necessary. Uh, you don't have to com comment back on that. I have one final question, though. Sure. Uh, no, uh, school funding. You know, that I know this is a big adult issue, uh, but you know it. It is important. Uh, I know it's December 1st, so you probably – it's a little early, but uh, anything you can tell us of where school funding might be uh, in 2017? Sure, um, and you're right. It, it is a big adult issue, but again, when we reference it on how those funds affect our students, we have a different conversation. Um, we're certainly early in the process right now, and, and I'm early in my role, and we know that there are multiple proposals, but um, as we move into the new year, possibly able to give a better sense of that, but certainly ready to support the governor um, when he, as we always do, when he uh, announces his budget and then we have, we turn those numbers around to um, support our districts. All right. Uh, I only have like 30 seconds. I should say one thing. I, I forgot this. Uh, one of your goals as commissioner uh, is to visit as many schools on a fairly consistent basis. Is that correct? 
It absolutely is. I need to hear um, the voices of students and, and see them in learning and hear from them how they like to learn and what matters most to them so that their voice is represented. And also, it's critically important to me to thank our educators for the amazing work that they do day in and day out, their evenings, their weekends, their summers, and um, you know, just to be able to personally thank them for the service that they give to our children. All right. That brings us to the end of this. Uh, uh, Commissioner Harrington, I'd really like to thank you, uh, and I wish you well in, the, in your term. Uh, and you know, know that the educators in New Jersey will try to work with you as best they can. Thank, thank you, you so for much, uh, Ray. spending time. Okay. Thank you. Bye now. Bye.